Wow. So Bill and Tracy should be coming on on, on uh, Zoom, and then we're piping this out through uh, live streaming to those who want to watch it. And we're also putting it on um, on Facebook, uh, Facebook, and then also on YouTube, so you can catch it later. If you didn't catch this morning's, you're going to want to catch up on that. If you were here this morning, you're going to watch have to watch it again because there's so much in there that uh, you're going to need another opportunity to hear that. And so. Bill and Tracy, there, there you are. Hey, good to see you. So, what time of night do you stop your coffee, Bill? Did you stop it already, or is it? <laughs> I I stopped drinking coffee somewhere, somewhere around. Well, it depends. It's Saturday, so yeah. No, I I stopped drinking coffee around mm. around noon. That was that was it. It was over for me. Yeah. Anything past noon, I just don't sleep. Yeah, yeah. Well. Hey, thanks for today. That was wonderful. Uh, created a real buzz. People are, are talking about it. We had lunch together, uh, had a chicken barbecue, and, and people were talking about how God was speaking to them, and that's what we want to hear. Uh, the Holy oh, my Spirit. goodness. You tell, you tell somebody from the South that you were barbecuing, yeah. and now you make us feel super, yeah. super bad that we oh, weren't well, there. <laughs> it just What it means is you're going to have to come up in person once this whole COVID thing settles down we, we'd love for you to come up and meet our people amen yeah and so and i think there's people here that you've met before in other places and so uh other conferences you've been to where they've been as well so good deal so the kids are over in another building and they're having like a little vbs here tonight there's a, a wonderful grandma in there and she's loving them up one side and down the other and so so uh, we do have to keep that in mind, but at the same time, we want you to accomplish what you can accomplish in the next little while. And so take your time and let's see what happens with it. Great. Well, we're so glad to be back with you again. And uh, got anything you want to kick off with tonight? No, uh, actually, could I just pray over you guys? Yeah, let's do that. Father, I thank you so much. For everybody who's gathered here tonight, Lord, we thank you for your presence. I thank you for every marriage, every relationship, for those that are seeking to know more, Lord, uh, for future relationships. God, we just thank you that your Holy Spirit is within us, that you would open our eyes and give us revelation about what it means, Christ in us, the hope of glory, what it means to be one with you and one with each other, Lord. Teach us about our connectedness. And Father, I just speak and release protection and blessing over every family that's represented here tonight, God. In the middle of this crazy uh, time in the world, Lord, would you just cover their homes? I just pray they would be hidden in you, um, yet a shining light in this world, Lord. Um, just cover them, protect them, bless their households. I pray that uh, tonight as we speak, that any blinders would be removed, that um, there would just be revelation popping like crazy tonight, Lord. Uh, give us freedom. And uh, I just thank you for everyone here tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going we're gonna to hit a couple of things tonight. We're going to, uh, I'm going to touch on something um, of, of our origin and identity. To help us kind of understand as as um, as mates, as soulmates, as spouses, how uh, how we uh, relate to each other from that place of our reconciled union with God. We're going to talk a little bit about the ramifications of that in both time and eternity. We're going to go from Genesis to Revelation. We're going to do that relatively quickly, 
And then we're going to finish up this whole night by uh, talking a little bit about uh, sexual intimacy, which is uh, one of the parts of any marriage conference where people are going, all right, I wonder what they're going to have to say about that. Like everybody's kind of got their own opinion and their own take. But to kind of get this started, there's a couple of resources that we have available uh, and they're on our website. One is uh, a book that Tracy and I wrote actually many, many years ago called Vignette, uh, Glimpses of the Mystery of Love. And uh, Vignette uh, was uh, written from our own personal journals uh, where we just took some time to just record the revelations that God was giving us uh, at the time. And uh, in this, we talk about the way we met uh, love, intimacy, and all that stuff. So I'm going to refer back to that at some point. It's a really easy read. It's Super just easy. A very read. basic, very basic read. Yeah. But there's a lot of deep. There's a lot of deep thoughts there's in deep there, and and, uh, and and some good truth. There's also on our website, BillVanderbush.com. You can go to a page on there that says marriage, and there is a seven-part series that we made available for free. Uh, covers some of the things that we talked about today, but today we went into a little bit more detail, I think, than we do on that series. But it's seven short, uh, just short talks, good things to maybe at the end of your day, download the files and listen to them at the end of the day as a couple, something to talk about. There's always something in there where we give you your questions and things that, that you can ponder and, and talk back and forth about conversation starters. And so that's available on the website. And then completely unrelated to marriage, uh, but then again, maybe not. Uh, just released a 10-part, a 10-hour series on the book of Revelation. And that just came out this past week. And that's on uh, the website as well. And it's called Restoring Revelation. It's on the book of Revelation from a New Covenant perspective. And it may have some uh, different ideas than you've ever heard of. But I did my homework on this one and uh, I put over a 1,000 hours of study into it. And so uh, after, after just tons of time diving into and pouring over, I found some things about Revelation that I had never known before. And so uh, if you have any interest in the book of Revelation, or if you're, you're being peppered with questions from people who have uh, interest in things like last days, end times, and all the things pertaining to the book of Revelation, then uh, that may be a really, really enlightening series for you. Uh, and uh, I look forward to hearing some some feedback i've already started getting some really amazing feedback this week so awesome well i tell you what if you got bibles go with me to genesis chapter one tonight and i want to talk about the origin of how we came to be because understanding all all the things that i talked about this morning regarding how you see yourself and how you see your spouse how you can see christ in somebody before they even see him in themselves is probably one of the most uh, difficult to understand but necessary mysteries of this Christian life. And so uh, Genesis chapter 1, I'm just going to paraphrase a couple of verses, but I want to get down to verse 26. And I want to just hit this one verse, and then I want to kind of elaborate on this. It says, Then God said, Let's, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over the cattle and the earth and every creeping thing that creeps over the earth. Then God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and every living thing that moves upon the earth. And God goes and gives them plants and all that good stuff. So. All right, let's back up a little bit 
before we get to the image and likeness part, I just want to talk to you a little bit about how God creates. When we look at the story in Genesis, we discover that one of the ways that God creates, first off, he does, through, through, uh, does so through sound. He speaks things into existence. The power of his word literally creates worlds. He spoke galaxies and universes into existence. He, he spoke everything into existence with the power of his word. And this is an important point, that the power of the word of God is the most powerful force in all time and eternity. It, it is the thing that holds all things together. The Bible says he holds all things together by the word of his power, the power of his word. So everything is held together in Christ through his word. Uh, on a molecular level, scientists will tell, tell you that there is more empty space than there is more full space. It's a, a, the atomic structure is its frequency and its sound, and it literally carries a sound and a frequency to it. So everything you could say is held together uh, in the symphony of God. It's the, the grand symphony of heaven animated uh, by the declared word of the Lord. Now, God's word forms worlds, but he will not use the power of his word to break your will, which is really amazing. God has a high, high value for freedom. Freedom is, is the, one of the chief values of the love of God. One of the chief expressions of the love of God is to grant humanity the freedom to actually choose or the freedom to say no. God didn't take away our ability to say no to him on the cross. He has equipped man with this capacity to make a choice. So his word simply is offered to us as an invitation to live in surrender to the voice of the spirit. And we get to choose whether we want to do that or not. So uh, when God creates, he does so by first creating a dead environment. And then he speaks like he creates water. He creates land. He creates the environments that life is going to live in. Then what he does is he speaks into that environment. He literally makes declaration over the substance of the environment that he's made. And it's meant to produce life that lives and moves and has its being in that environment. So when he's going to make fish, he just simply speaks to water. And he says this phrase, let the sea bring forth. And everything that's meant to live and move and have its being and swim around starts doing what it does. When he makes plants and animals, this is the phrase that the Lord uses, let the earth bring forth. And he makes that declaration, everything comes forth that's meant to live and move and have its being in the earth. Then he turns and changes things up in Genesis 1.26. Now God says an interesting phrase when he said, let us make man. Let us make man in our image and after our likeness. When he says, let us, the us he's speaking to is not just God and the angels. He's talking, because you're not made in the image and likeness of an angel. He's talking, in a sense, in an internal dialogue between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is God as Father, Spirit, and Son having an internal dialogue. You could say this, God, by his very nature, is a self-giving, other-centered relationship of love modeled within the human family. So when God makes man in his image and likeness, he creates the beginnings of what ends up becoming family. I want you to think of it like this. 
uh, guys, men in the room, you uh, exhibit and demonstrate the image and likeness of God as Father. Think of who God as Father is. He's protector, provider, source of life from whom the family gets its name and its identity. Um, so we don't know, men, we don't know how to be dads. We don't know how to be fathers apart from looking at the example of our heavenly father and patterning our lives after that. If you had an earthly father that was a lousy example and you can't look past that example to your heavenly father, you're going to have a find, find yourself having a very difficult time knowing what to reflect. And when it comes time to make decisions as a father, you're going to pull your reference point from probably the, the, the source you know the most which is why so many times we end up without a full revelation of the knowledge of God, we end up becoming the very image and likeness of maybe a father we even despised. The reason that we do this is because that we become what we behold. You can say it like this, whatever has our attention ultimately has our affection. And we begin to reflect what we focus on for better or for worse. And another reason why forgiveness is so important because when we find ourselves filled with hatred for somebody to the point where it consumes our attention, we can actually find ourselves beginning to reflect the, the actions or the activities or the image and likeness of the person that we, we even despise and, and, and because we're focusing on them so much. One of, uh, one of the reasons why psychologists will tell us uh, kids who are abused uh, by their parents often become abusive parents themselves. They determined they didn't want to be that. And so they focused so much on the person they didn't want to become that when it came time to make a choice, uh, they, they reflected the very thing that they were watching and looking at. That's why what we focus on becomes so important. So guys, we don't know how to be dads apart from watching Father God. Um, Mom, this is an interesting one. Every woman in the room, mothers in the room, you reflect the nature of God as Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Think of the Holy Spirit's characteristics, traits, and names. The helper, comforter, guide. Comforter, there's a big one. Um, uh, when my kids would fall down, scrape their knee or something, I'd expect them to jump, you know, jump up and run straight to me. No, they run right past me and go straight to her because she had the comfort gene because they knew dad was going to say something stupid, like it won't hurt when the pain goes away, right? Um, something dumb like that. Uh, but uh, guide, I, I don't know why, but women like to like get directions to things. Guys, we don't ask for directions for anything. Uh, even, even Apple knows this. Instinctively, the voice of the GPS is automatically programmed by default to be the voice of a woman. Why? Try switching it over to a guy's voice sometime. I did it one time, five turns in, I turned it back. I didn't trust him. I didn't believe what he was saying. It started going against the GPS. It, it's been, so, so helper, guide, uh, uh, the Holy Spirit is called the spirit of truth, will instruct us or guide us into all truth. And so uh, if you're a homeschooling family, Dad might say he's, you know, the principal of the school, but 99% eh, of the teaching is probably going to be done by mom because that's just kind of the way that, that she's built, carried and wired. So women, moms, you reflect the nature and character, the image and likeness of God as spirit, Holy Spirit. 
uh, all of us reflect the image and likeness of Christ, God in Christ. All of our peer and our friend relationships are reflected in Christ. Think of who Jesus is. He is called the firstborn of many brethren, uh, and, and that's us. Uh, which is really kind of cool when you think about it. In our earthly relationships from our older siblings, what do we get? We get hand-me-downs. We get lousy clothes. From Jesus, what do we get? When John 17, he prayed, Father, the glory you've given me, I give to them that they may be one. So that's pretty good hand-me-down. From our elder brother, Jesus, we get glory. So yeah, so we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Because of Christ, we've been brought into this family. Now, how in the family actually are we? Well, the Bible says we've received the spirit of adoption, and Jesus said you must be born again. So you're both born into this family, and you're adopted into this family. That's pretty in. Can't get much more in than that. All right? So, so here's the deal. God, when he makes man, he says, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. Father, Spirit, and Son. Now, if you don't remember anything else I say tonight, listen to what I'm about to say now. Think of this. When God makes fish, he speaks to the environment of water. When he makes plants and animals, he spoke to the environment of earth. What did he speak to when he made man? He spoke to the environment of himself. Think about that for a moment. Some of you, you'll get it at 3 a.m. You'll wake up in the middle of the night and go, he spoke to himself. This, this one truth right here can wreck your life forever in the best way possible. When you begin to realize the environment God spoke to, to make humanity was actually the environment of himself. Now, what does it tell you about the environment you and I are meant to live and move? And have our being in, draw our life from. It, our very breath and existence is in Him. That's the deal. And so here's the way God makes man. And this is different than the rest of everything. All of it, He just speaks into existence. But here we have God actually seeming to bend down to the must and dud, dust, mud, mud and dust and clay of earth. And uh, I do need more coffee. And he lifts all of that up to his face and he goes and breathes into it. And it's not just it's it's Yahweh. It's the breath of God. And God does something most unique with the creation of man. He takes mud and dirt and sand and breathes his very spirit into it. And that collision of the physical environment and the very breath and spirit of God creates man as a divine convergence zone between heaven and earth, which is who you are. Okay, now I'm not saying, for those of you who are getting super uncomfortable with this whole concept, I'm not saying you are God. You're not God, and God is not you, but you are way more than mere dirt, right? This costume that we carry is not us. This costume is a vehicle for the true you, which is made in the image and likeness of God, who is spirit. And so you and I, and we, we take care of this. This body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. So we honor God with our costume, our flesh. But nonetheless, this is not who we are. 
And most of the hangups and issues that we have in life, and oftentimes even in marriage, are costume-based issues. Issues surrounding the needs of our body, surrounding the wants of our body, surrounding taking care of our body, surrounding admiring our, the bodies and all that stuff. It, it's so costume-based. And so we find ourselves dropping our perspective down to what I would call as a lower nature perspective. Inferior. Inferior, yeah. exactly. And so, so when we realize that first and foremost, we are eternal spirits, then pretty soon we'll lift our perspective above and beyond the issues of the costume and we'll learn how to steward and govern our costumes a whole lot easier. Okay. That kind of reminds me of Ephesians 6.12. Yeah. We wrestle not against so flesh and blood, right? It's against the spiritual powers of darkness and all that. And, um, and there was a lady, when we got married, there was a woman that came up to me one time and she said, my marriage advice to you is, your husband is not your enemy. And I thought, what kind of advice is that? That's weird. And she, she explained, you know, the enemy wants you to think your husband's your enemy. And so I was like, wow, that's, that's fascinating. But, yeah, right, but it's so true. Keep our eyes on the superior, the spirit, things and, of the spirit. And we oftentimes think that wrestling not against flesh and blood is all about conflict with other people or conflict with something spiritual in a sense outside of us. Oftentimes it's a conflict with a, a lie that our spirit has come to believe to be true that has reflected in everything about us. So when man is formed and created as that spiritual divine convergence zone between heaven and earth, think about how that formation happens. The Bible says God breathed into man's nostrils the breath of life. That's super close. So think of this. Man is first born in a face-to-face -face encounter with God. That's where you and I belong. That's where we were birthed. And think about our first experience. Humanity's very first conscious experience we ever had was opening our eyes to behold the face of a father who actually loves us, cares for us, adores us, has no disappointment in us was 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 uh, absolutely in love with you before he even he even had the chance to do anything to cause him to be impressed or disappointed with you he knows who you are he's always known who you are and that's the birthplace of humanity that's where we belong right there so adam and eve are birthed in this beautiful environment which is kind of like this god is love right so god didn't create man because he he needed him. He didn't create him because he was lonely. God creates man because God is by nature creative. And so he's an artist. And so he creates man in, in a sense as an expression, an artistic expression of his himself, his own image and his own likeness. Now, people ask the question, and I don't know if I've ever actually talked about this before on a, in a message, but people often ask the question, What's the difference between image and likeness? So there is a difference, but it's kind of like uh, two sides of the same coin. It's kind of like in prayer. Um, somebody says, I'm praying. Somebody says, I'm crying out to God. Well, is it a prayer or a cry? Well, yes. Yeah, so two aspects of the same thing. Image and likeness is two aspects of the same thing. So the image of, of God is the attributes of God. 
The likeness of God is the representation of those attributes. Every human being on earth carries elements of the image of God just because they live and move and have their being. They can see and they have heartbeats and they have, they have the capacity to love and be loved and make choices and exercise freedom. And they carry some level of, of weight and authority in their words and declarations simply because they're made in the image of God. But it's only in giving or surrendering our lives to Christ and allowing his Holy Spirit to guide us that we learn how to reflect that image or put that image on display. So again, the likeness of God would be the reflections of those things, the representation of that image. How do we represent the image of God in our life? That would be the likeness. And I think that's really done by the power of the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, we end up just making stuff up on how to to put the image of God on display. But the Holy Spirit will teach us to just live in the surrendered obedience to his voice. And I think this is one of the only ways that we in covenant can have a strong marriage at all. And that is as husbands and wives to live in surrendered obedience to the voice of the Lord. I can tell you in my own life, the voice of the Holy Spirit, a lot of times sounds like her. God gives us a spouse oftentimes who has the perspective to see what we fail to see. Does the Holy Spirit nag you sometimes? Sometimes, yeah. No, I, I get that a lot from the Holy Spirit because I'm a little thick uh, here sometimes. So, um, yeah, uh, I, I remember I'm in a, I'm in a meeting one time uh, down in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania at Life Center. And uh, right in the middle of the meeting, I, I, I can feel the, the Lord. I can feel the Holy Spirit going, hey. Hey, Bill, but I was really, I had some great, just some really good points and revelation that I felt like I was bringing out, but I kept feeling like the Holy Spirit was going, hey, and finally, just almost just loud enough to where I could, you know, audibly hear it internally said, hey, I'm healing people right now. Stop, pay attention. And I went, oh, hey, wait, if you came in with any measurable condition, I think the Lord wants to heal you right now. And uh, within just a minute, we had a number of people that stood and started testifying to the fact that they were getting healed right in that moment, tumors dissolving and pain going away and all kinds of crazy stuff. So, yeah, sometimes the Holy Spirit does uh, does tend to nag me a little bit. Yeah, it happens. (laughs) So Adam is made from the, the overflow. Again, Adam wasn't created because he was he was needed by God or God was lonely. God is love and he's creative. So he created Adam from an overflow of love. And from Eve, it's not that that God looked and went, oh, man, we're missing something here. But God does make a declaration that's fascinating. He says, the first thing God ever says is not good is for man to be alone. And so God takes and splits man, humanity, uh, Adam, Adam, into two, male and female. And now each one is made for the other. And from that place of union, God uh, represents between human relationships, something beautiful that's supposed to reflect our relationship with him, which is called a covenant, a covenant that draws us into a place of love-centered intimacy that ultimately produces life. And in our covenant with God in Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, our union with the Lord will automatically produce life. Life becomes the byproduct of our times of 
uh, spending with the Lord, our times of investing in, in just that place of intimacy and communion with God, uh, letting the Lord speak into us and actually uh, cause us to be uh, to become fruit-bearing people. Uh, we as branches have no capacity to bear fruit of ourselves, but that we are grafted into and clinging to the vine. And a branch that's bearing fruit doesn't even have to work to bear fruit. Fruit becomes a byproduct of that attachment to the vine. And so uh, uh, there's so much about our relationships with our spouse that can teach us about our relationship with the Lord. At the same time, there's so much about our relationship with the Lord, a healthy relationship with the Lord, that can teach us about how to have a healthy relationship with our spouse. I've run into ministers who I would say have have a, a healthy relationship with the Lord, but have never applied it in their marriage. And so even though their devotion to the Lord is tremendous, they sacrifice their, their wife and family on the altar of uh, spiritual devotion to God, ignoring, in a sense, the nudges from the Holy Spirit to prioritize their wife and their children uh, as, as the core of their ministry. Um, that's, that's tragic. Equally tragic would be to have a strong marriage, uh, a healthy union together, but to have no relationship with the Lord. And I think those only can go so far. Um, so where does this take us? Well, Revelation chapter three, we're jumping all the way to Revelation now. Revelation chapter three and verse 21, I think is the second most mind melting verse in the whole Bible. And it speaks to the reality that because of what Christ did to reconcile us back to the father, to bring us into a place of reconciled union with the Lord and Father again, that now that union continues for all eternity. Uh, when you give your life to Christ, there is no time in, in all time and eternity where you will ever find yourself in a place of distance and separation from God, except in your own mind. Uh, Colossians talks about that we used to be enemies, estranged from God, and enemies of God in our mind, but not his. He has always known what he believes about it. So Revelation chapter 3, verse 21 says this, To him who overcomes, I'll grant you to sit with me on the throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Now, this is an exercise that I, I, I like to, to kind of take you through just, just real briefly here. And uh, I just want to I just want to have you just close your eyes for just a second. Just right where you are, just close your eyes and just listen to what I'm, I'm going to tell you. I want you to put yourself into the throne room of God. I want you to allow yourself to see and just to imagine, just to awaken that childlike imagination, that beautiful gift of that limitless canvas that you could dream dreams on when you were a kid, the kind of thing that made playtime so much fun. And I want you to, to just ignite that imagination and I want just to see yourself in the throne room of God. See the walls. What color are they? Are they clear? Are they blue? Are they gold? Are they silver? Are they like diamond? And what about what you're standing on? We know that the streets are paved with gold, but we also know that from beneath the throne, there is a, a river that is running and, and, and that river clear as glass. One, one uh, verse says, and another part of Revelation says, it's, it's a blaze like fire. We know that God is love and he is consuming fire at the same time. So the consuming fiery love of God enraptures uh, the, 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 the saints that are before the throne. 
Uh, then see the throne. How big is that throne? Is it gigantic? Like uh, maybe like like the Lincoln Memorial, uh, maybe a, a stone throne, a, a granite or marble edifice that's just bigger than you can even begin to start to measure, or or is it a comfortable chair? And can you see your father sitting on this throne? Can you see God sitting on the throne? And and how does he look to you? Does he look old? Does he look young? Does he look timeless? Look at his face and can you see his face maybe beyond the light? Does he have features, emotion? Does he look happy, joyful, maybe tired? Is he frowning, disappointed, angry? What does he look like when you look into his eyes? And then, again, let me ask this question. Where are you in the throne room? Think about this question. Where are you in the throne room? Every person listening to this tonight, we know, we want, we desire. In the afterlife, we'll see Jesus face to face. We'll be with the Lord in eternity beyond what we could ask or think or describe. But in this moment, in your imagination, placing yourself right there in the throne room of God, where are you? Now, some people have said to me over the years, I'm on my face before the throne. Some people have said, I'm standing with my hands lifted high. Some people say, I'm looking around. I'm looking for people who who I know. Some people will say, I'm on my knees. In a sense, I'm repenting for everything I can think of and begging for mercy. I've heard some people say, um, one person in particular said, I'm standing outside uh, and I know there's a doorway off to, to my left and I can hear a sound in there and I know that's where I want to be but I don't feel worthy to even go in. So where are you on the throne? All right, go ahead and open your eyes. Now, rather than make this part up, rather than let your imagination paint the picture of where you are in the throne room, let's refer back to the verse that I just quoted to you from Revelation 3.21 that says, to him who overcomes, I'll grant you to sit with me on my throne as I overcame and sat with my father on his throne. In eternity, in heaven, the place where you and I have been given access to, according to Jesus, and this is Jesus talking in Revelation 3.21, is to be seated on the throne with him. No distance, no separation, invited to be a part of this beautiful relationship between Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God that dwells in you caused you to be the temple of his presence, so that throne room is actually within you now. And if you begin to see the reality of this, then you can start to see your spouse maybe even differently as well. You begin to regard your husband, your wife, as that place where the Spirit of God literally dwells in them. Even if they're not reflecting that likeness in the moment, the reality is the image is an impartation of heaven. That's a gift of grace. We help one another to begin to learn how to reflect that likeness. It doesn't come through legalistic rules. It comes through celebrating the grace upon our life, celebrating the goodness of God on our life, uncovering the gold and projecting out into this world 
the glories of his kingdom meant to not just impact us within us, but to move from within us to impact the world around us. Uh, the, the, so much, so, so much more I could go into uh, besides this, but uh, let me just land on this point and then we'll move into the next section. The, um, the nature of God as love is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, known as the love chapter. We always, for whatever reason, reserve this for weddings. And a lot of times people will think about this whole concept of being on the throne. They'll think, I'm just not worthy of this bill. That belongs to super special people like Pastor Penn and uh, uh, you know people like that. Those folks belong on the throne. But me, no, 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 that's not for me. Because it, it belongs to overcomers, it says. Is built to him who overcomes. That's special people. The revelation goes on to tell us how we overcome. And there's two ways that we overcome. Number one, we overcome by the blood of the lamb and by the word of our testimony. The blood of the lamb is what Christ has done. The word of our testimony is us talking about what Christ has done. Kind of like what you've been hearing tonight. And when we begin to realize that because he overcame, that is what makes us overcomers. Then we can find ourselves qualified to let his divinity define our humanity. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, it goes through the the whole list. Love is patient. Love is kind. Tracy read it earlier today, this morning, when she said, love keeps no record of wrongs. I want you to think of love not as a concept, idea, or philosophy, but as a person. It's Christ who is in the Father, and the Father is in him. So Christ is literally reflecting the nature of the Father, the Spirit, are all together united in Christ. Now, if that's the case, then love, as described by Paul, is a description of who your Father is. It's a description of the nature and likeness, the image and likeness of God. So we discover how in the world do I put the image and likeness of God on display? Go to 1 Corinthians 13, and you'll find out. You'll see that God is patient and God is kind. He he doesn't envy or boast. He's not jealous. He's not easily provoked. He keeps no record of wrongs, believes, hopes, bears, and endures all things. Our Lord never fails. The description of love is a description of your father. But because it's him that defines you, read that passage again. Go through 1 Corinthians 13. And think of it in terms of God. That might be a stretch, learning how to believe that. Keeping no record of wrongs, Bill? I thought he was going to judge me. Well, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And this is the way he did it. It says, by not counting our trespasses against us. That's just another way of saying keeping no record of wrongs. So the grace of God in Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit validates our innocence. And it demonstrates the heart of a God who refuses to allow your sin to even be put into your account. That's how you're qualified to be seated in heavenly places with a holy God. That's how it is that he and his divinity and perfection and beauty and holiness define our humanity, changing us from the inside out. And so think of, think of uh, uh, you say, well, that, wow, Bill, I've never heard anything like this. Uh, this is a whole new, uh, 
a whole new concept, a whole new idea. It's not a new idea. Paul wrote about this 2,000 years ago in the book of Ephesians when he wrote, we are, present tense right now, seated in heavenly places with Christ. In 1 Corinthians 6, when he wrote, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. He actually puts it in the form of a question. Know you not that you're the temple of the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of God dwells in you? So it is our union with God that defines really who we are. It's his divinity that defines our humanity. Now, if you begin to see yourself that way, it'll change the way you see your spouse. This is how, and somebody were to ask the question, how do I look at my spouse and see Christ in them before they even see him in themselves? Well, that's the answer that I've been giving you tonight, is to allow his divinity to define our humanity, to allow his overcoming grace from the cross be the thing that ultimately defines who we are and, and how we see one another. And so uh, I'm going to say a quick prayer for you, and then we're going to move into the time of talking a little bit about uh, physical intimacy and union. Mr. on that first Corinthians thing on the love chapter, you know, love is patient, love is kind, and it goes through what love is. And um, one thing that Bill has done over the last few years is, you know, he'll tell me he loves me, but sometimes he'll say, do you know that I love you? Um, or, or we can look at first Corinthians 13, according to that, do you feel loved by me? And to which so, Tracy will often reply, you know, if you if you would just rub my feet, I, I may <laughs> feel maybe a little bit more of that that love. So yeah, sure. <laughs> no, but I think that's an important thing going over that chapter that we've become so familiar with and uh, but actually take in every phrase what love is and then turning to ourselves, you know, being able to say to our spouse, do you feel loved by me? That's a good question and yeah. uh, to see if we're really exhibiting or putting on display what love is. A lot of times that, that, that union that we have with God is, um, is really based around communion. If we don't have any time of intimacy and talking with the Lord, we never learn to cultivate uh, an appetite for his presence and for his voice. And we never grow in our relationship with God. We don't grow in our covenant with the Lord. Um, even though it doesn't change the fact that he saved us, we're Christians, and that we belong to him, and all those things. Communication is what grows our relationship with God. In the same way, our communication together um, grows our relationship with one another, and it serves to bring the gold out of us. Um, I'm going to send, uh, there was a psychologist some years ago that came up with a list of questions, and I believe it was 30 questions. And he said, uh, he said uh, that the idea was to develop this list of questions that if two people would sit down and explore this list of questions that would open up communication, it would bring them to such a place of knowledge and intimacy with one another because it would open up it's basically the kind of questions that would unlock doors in your life to where when you get to the end of the list of 30, if you've honestly answered all of them to the best of your ability, you will have achieved the level of transparency that will bring connection together. And he claimed that it would actually cause people to fall in love. I did a number of experiments with this and tests with just random people over the years and discovered that there was indeed, first off, an emotional connection that was had in that, in that time 
that led to a desire to even be closer. So these questions that led to transparency actually increased the ability to fall in love. So when we think about when we think about um, how to to keep your love on, as Danny Silk would say, or keep your love alive in your marriage, it really has to do with questions, uh, questions that produce uh, uh, heartfelt responses of transparency and vulnerability. And vulnerability is a huge key. Um, yeah. And we Talk have a thing in our bit. marriage, no secrets. Yeah. Um, everything, all cards on and the it's table. it's true. Absolute honesty. And while it can be hard sometimes, it's actually an amazing tool to grow your um, love for one another, your respect for one another. So that's been a big key for us. Now, a lot of times when people go, okay, so I'm going to try this vulnerability thing. That means that means I'm going to actually confess something to my spouse that I've been personally struggling with and keeping a secret. Um, and, and and when you do that, is there pain involved? Absolutely. But the thing is, is and you know the old phrase that you're only as sick as your secrets. When we give somebody else the opportunity, and they might feel it's like an assignment to release grace or release forgiveness. Oftentimes in that moment, you they have a choice. That person has a choice to choose bitterness and resentment, the hurt of maybe betrayal, the hurt of not being trusted with the secret before. How come you didn't tell me this before? Um, and all those things. And then they have the assignment to do something with it. This is one of the reasons why grace is so powerful, because the release of grace in that moment, not a grace that just turns and and says, oh, I don't want to even deal with that, but a grace that acknowledges and moves out of the way and refocuses back on the love. That grace actually increases our ability to love one another. Secrets and a lack of transparency is what drives a wedge between people. And over the years, I've watched marriages drifting and drifting and drifting apart. When I sit down as a pastor and I sit down to counsel couples, I'll often ask the question, um, to, to each one uh, separately. Is there a secret in your life? Is there something in your life that you haven't told your spouse? And they'll say, maybe sometimes they'll say, yeah, of course there is uh, a lot of things I haven't told her. Why haven't she said anything? Because I don't want her. I don't want to hurt her. I really do care about her. And I just don't want to hurt her. I understand the nobility of that, but there's a spiritual severance that happens when we allow a secret, when we allow a hidden sin in our life to actually create uh, uh, a wedge within that covenant. There's a spiritual severance that happens between two people that that they can one one can feel. They know it exists, and uh, uh, especially if you have a super intuitive spouse. And so uh, Tracy has has a and Tracy would know in a flat heartbeat if there was something going on in my life that shouldn't be going on in my life and would confront me about it without even thinking twice. Because many years ago, we discovered the value of walking through a life of complete and total transparency in which there are no secrets whatsoever. Uh, only when something comes to the surface can, can it be dealt with. But the only way that you can ever, I think, feel free for that to happen is when you begin with identity, you begin with that place of intimacy with God. And you begin to that, that place of grace, receiving the grace of what Christ has done for you. Then freely you've received, freely you give. And it's in that environment that, uh, that God actually releases grace through you. Otherwise, you end up 
working and struggling and striving on your own to try to forgive somebody without realizing that forgiveness frees the forgiver. Forgiveness frees not just them, but it frees you most of all. And so when somebody else, let's say somebody else does something that's horrible, and then they come to you to confess that something, they've just signed you up for an assignment you never signed up for, which is now you get the opportunity to release grace over them. But that impartation of grace is ultimately what brings a healing to their identity. That impartation of grace can actually bring everything back around to a place where intimacy is renewed. So they can give grace and it also requires grace of the person confessing because then they're going to have to give grace to that person yeah. for how they respond <laughs> and process the information. But, so but rather than be becoming a, a cycle of unforgiveness, uh, it becomes a cycle of grace that actually elevates the entire marriage. Yeah. And that grows intimacy. I wanted to mention something. I don't know. You may have heard this. It's a psychological term called UPR. It's unconditional positive regard. And I think it's really important in releasing grace and practicing grace as we have intimacy, openness, and honesty, you know, in our relationship, that we have to practice this. It is unconditionally, despite behavior and performance, giving positive regard to somebody. Positive meaning consisting in or characterized by the presence or possession of features or qualities rather than their absence. So often we look at the absence of qualities or character, but we can give positive regard and look for those things to be present in them. So it's good, it's affirmative, it's constructive. Um, it's easy to focus on what's lacking, right? Yeah, it's yeah, easy it's to true. focus on that. Bill Johnson has a saying about that. Um, okay, this just came to mind. Help me remember. About not, okay, we celebrate. Oh, yeah, we celebrate who somebody is. Yes. Without stumbling over who, who they, they are, are not. not. Yes, yeah. celebrate who somebody is without stumbling That's over good. who they are not. I love that. Yeah. So when we regard our spouse, we're looking upon them with favor. We esteem them, again, as Jesus said, esteem others above yourself. We consider them. We um, take action to relate to them, even if we're like, I can't relate to this. But we take action to do that to really see them, to really hear them, uh, and and practicing the giving of respect in the middle of whatever it is they're processing. Yeah. So yeah. So tonight I want to um, uh, I want to finish this section just by just releasing an impartation over you of of an awareness of your union with God, an awareness that you are seated with Him in heavenly places on the throne, and and, and a freedom to speak and declare the truth to and about one another. And, uh, uh, and I pray that as you do this, that there's a grace, a supernatural impartation of grace. Now listen, grace doesn't say that what a person did is okay. It doesn't say that their struggles are okay. Um, grace actually gives a person room to grow beyond the struggle that has held them back for so long. And, uh, uh, uh yeah. So, Heavenly Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit right now, God, I pray for every marriage represented in this webinar tonight, in this building that's meeting there tonight, in Wellspring tonight. Lord, I pray that you would pour out a supernatural grace for transparency, 
for open communication, for difficult conversations that, that may re- re- result in, in moments of pain, God, but, but may those moments of pain give way to a supernatural grace. As you declare over their lives, maybe, maybe things won't be the same as they were before, but they can be better. God, for, for every person that's listening this to, to this tonight who had a hard time seeing themselves on the throne, Lord, I speak and release and declare over them a fresh revelation of sonship, that you have bought us with a price, with the currency of your own blood. God, may we recognize the value that was worth your death to bring us to a place of reconciled union. And Lord, we celebrate that holiness. We celebrate that righteousness. And we celebrate this new covenant marriage with you, God. We celebrate that we are, in fact, the bride of Christ, God, that we are joined in that covenant union with you. So, Lord, I pray that that covenant would be reflected in every marriage represented in this, in this call tonight. God, may our children grow, grow up with a revelation of the nature of the image and likeness of God because they see you in their parents. God, may they have a clear representation of that other-centered, self-giving relationship of love. And Father, I pray for just an increase of intimacy in every way upon marriages represented here tonight. God, may you heal hurting hearts. May you cause us to be strengthened in in our character and, and, and able to hear your voice like never before. God, I pray for just a supernatural clarity to hear your voice. The season and time of dreams and visions where sleep is restored and redeemed, where you bring us back to that place of being able to commune with you, both when we're asleep and when we're awake. Cause us to exercise those prophetic graces upon our lives, to be able to see into heaven's solutions for every problem and declare and speak your word into every difficulty and into every darkness. And God, I pray for just an angelic, supernatural angelic presence to surround and assign, be assigned over every family and every dwelling represented in this call tonight. God, that there would be no work of darkness, no attack of the enemy, no demon of hell that could even begin to touch their dwelling place or get close to them. God, cause us to shine as the light of the world, to put your love and your radical grace on display. And Father, may it begin in our homes in our marriages, in our covenants. God, I speak a strengthening over marriages tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I tell you what, since we're um, an hour in, we'll take a quick, quick break. And for those of you who are able to, we'll come back and, and finish up with a, with, a, with a few minutes of Q&A. And then one other thing I want to talk to you guys tonight about, about intimacy. So, Pastor Penn. All right. All right. We're going to finish up with the last section on, on intimacy. We keep saying that intimacy. I think we're afraid to talk about sex or something. When have we ever been afraid to talk about sex? I'm just kidding. Oh my goodness. Um, whenever, whenever I do marriage counseling or premarital counseling, my, I, I find myself amused on how uncomfortable I can make this young couple. And, and the more conservative they are, the, the more fun it is, actually. Well, we can talk about that in a bit. I think one thing I want to tell you guys tonight is that it's possible to fall in love with each other again. 
So, and maybe you've experienced this. If you've been married for a really long time, that that falling in love feeling, Mm -hmm. it tends to ebb and flow. And, you know, people talk negatively about marriage so often as if those feelings go away, but they don't have to stay away. No matter what you've been through, it is possible to fall in love with each other again. And God, with him, all things are possible. So I just want you to know that tonight. It's kind of an art form, learning to fall in love with the same person more than one time. In a lifetime. (laughs) It's true. We fall in love with each other how many times? Several times. Many times. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So we just want to give you hope tonight. That's our prayer tonight. As we explore union with God, union with each other, that you are... Just infused with such hope for your relationships yeah. and for your dreams. I don't even like the term falling. Is it, that, that kind of like implies it's an accident. Yeah. And so, yeah, I just I'd skip that all together. <laughs> and you might want we could hit limerence. Yeah. 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 Before we, before we end up uh, talking about sexual intimacy, um, one of the things we need to bring up is something known as limerence. Limerence is a fascinating psychological term um, when, when people fall in love and they actually uh, develop a uh, sexual desire for one another. And um, it, it lasts anywhere from six months to two years. And it's a bit of a chemical cocktail that goes on in, in your head. So let's say that you're hanging out, let's say uh, you're, you're at work, and this is one of the areas that I think is just a huge thing to talk about in the church. Let's say you're at work and somebody of the opposite sex shows up. They don't even seem, you know, uh, you, you really have no regard for them at all, and then you start to talk, and as you talk, suddenly they begin to say things that actually begin to trigger connection. Uh, and again, I'm gonna send Pastor Penn that list of those 30 questions that generate intimacy, and that way you can pass those on to anybody who's on this webinar tonight. But if people start visiting, they start communicating, they start generating a connection, they can actually build an emotional bond that creates an emotional intimacy. If you've ever heard the term emotional affairs, it's, it's basically an intimacy apart from sex, but it's still just as damaging to a marriage. But the way that gets generated is because when two people, let's say you know, you've been married for a while, you've communicated about everything there is to communicate about, and, uh, and now you just really don't even talk anymore. You kind of got your own, you're in your own world, and, um, and you're doing your own thing. And then somebody comes along, and they start talking to you, and they awaken something within you that that makes you know that you're still desirable attractive cared about and whatnot and and to be interested in and so what ends up happening is there's actual physical thing that happens with our physical bodies where we actually kind of go numb to to all logic and reason and we can actually find ourselves going into areas of relationships with somebody who's not our spouse developing an intimacy even if it's just emotional or verbal intimacy with somebody else who's not our spouse. That begins the kind of a domino effect um, that, that ends up splitting up more marriages than I can count in, in my lifetime. And so uh, and people, you know, um, over the years uh, have testified to the reality that they think I never thought anything like this could ever happen well, to me. And it sparks those connections spark mm-hmm. when he's talking about limerence. It's a, it's a psychological term as yeah. well. And it's an actual study where they've, done the chemical studies and they see what happens in the brain when those connections are happening and they say it's like a drug so a person can't really reason well when they're under the influence of this kind of falling in love you know sort Mm -hmm. of connection that they don't reason well 
and they're kind of blind to things. So it's a very, it's a very real actual chemical reaction that takes place. It, and it's, it's actually bolstered by or fueled by secrecy. That's sort of like keeps the, keeps the, uh, uh, um, it, it, it keeps it alive in a sense and actually keeps it going. And that's why transparency and communication are such a big deal because the ability to be completely transparent with what's going on in your heart at any given moment, when you ever feel yourself going in that direction, the ability to be completely transparent with your spouse will actually neutralize that and it kills limmer instead mm -hmm. uh, in, in somebody else. It makes it impossible for that to, to uh, show up in your life, mm -hmm. or at least they say it makes it impossible. Mm -hmm. But I want to say that just, just because whenever we do anything like this, I always realize that this is one of the ways I think that down through the years that uh, we have an enemy that that is seeking to destroy families and destroy marriages, because again, then there's a there's a sense where there's a destruction of the image and likeness of God for the next generation. So kids grow up without having a clear representation of what God is like. And I think this is one of the chief ways it happens. Um, I hear people say, um, you know, well, I feel like God brought us together. I married the wrong person. That's a big one. People will say, well, I, I should have married somebody else. Um, let me just say this, that um, you say, well, how do I know if, if they're the one or should I got, should I got a different one? Um, in the garden, God put one tree that they couldn't eat from and told them which one it was and then told them that they could eat of every other tree in the garden. In other words, they had a million great choices and one bad one, and God told them which one it was. So God stacked the odds in our favor. In life, we have the capacity to actually have, and, and I think you, you have a, a wide variety of choices of people that you can choose to spend your life with. Some people say, well, I just believe this person is my soulmate. Hey, the minute you chose them, they became the one. That's it. It's the way it works. Um, you chose them, they, they, they're it. And so uh, I think God wants, uh, I think God wants to, to show us that even in the most difficult circumstances, that it's possible to see redemption show up and, and work. So um, yeah, anyway. And no condemnation if you've ever been in any of these situations yeah. we're talking about. Divorced, remarried, or anything yeah. like that. So let's talk a little bit about sexual intimacy or physical intimacy. Uh, I, I wrote a chapter. This is a this is a journal entry from years ago, and I'm going to refer to this because um, I don't know. I just it was true then, and it's even more true now. And we'll finish up with this tonight. So, any questions you guys got about the first section or this section? We'll take these after this. It's not enough just to think about love. Love must be experienced and fought for, tasted and rested in. Which this is one of the reasons why we get married, right? It's like I didn't get married for the theology of marriage. I didn't get married for the ability just to sit around and talk about marriage. Now, I got married because of the experience of it. And so a lot of times people say in their Christian life, well, you know, I don't want a Christianity that's just an experience. Well, hey, look, the stone being rolled away in the tomb was an experience. The coming of the Holy Spirit was an experience. Lazarus being raised from the dead was an experience. Christianity is actually meant to be experienced, right? So... We don't get married for the theology or the idea of marriage. We get married for the intimacy of it and the experience and the life that's produced from it. it says, um, so love's force possesses you, mind and body. And when you think of the deepest, 
most profound way that you can experience love on a physical level, sexual intimacy is the first thing that always comes to mind. Here's a big shocker, especially in Christian circles. All of us have been sexual creatures our whole life, whether we think we are or not. And if you grew up in a repressed conservative household, sex was probably rarely or never talked about. It was strange that actually, psychologically speaking, the most thought about subject on the human mind is rarely talked about in conservative Christian households out of a warped definition, oftentimes, of embarrassment disguised as respect. So conservatism tends to live within the confines of this lie that sexuality is just a condition that we're forced to live with. And, and, and we treat it oftentimes. I don't know why Christians do this, but we treat it like a, a disease in our public conversations only to be enjoyed in our private moments. So if it's true that we're only as sick as our secrets, then the church is diseased with covering up the fact that even Christian people are created as sexual creatures to actually enjoy sex. After all, it, your genitals didn't fall off or dry up when you accepted Christ, and thank God that they didn't. <laughs> but again, if you grew up in a Christian household, how was it for you as a young person? Like when you discovered that you might actually have some draw or desire towards sexuality, did it feel bad or did it feel wrong to you? So let me give you this analogy. For many people, um, liking sexuality feels as warped to our Christian consciousness as enjoying cancer. As shocking as that statement might, might be, ask yourself this question. What would be easier to announce to people publicly, that you love sex or that you have cancer? The truth is, for most people, I think, especially Christian people, they're both equally difficult statements to voice. Think of it like this. If you announce that you have cancer, it generates sympathy. But announcement, an announcement that you actually enjoy sexuality uh, would generate looks that might display a betrayal of social norms, that might look like disgust, but it would only be hiding an internally empathetic response from nearly every single person in the room because they can all, on some level, identify with you. The truth is that sexuality is pleasure created by God. And deep down inside, on a level of spirit, everyone knows this. The purity and beauty of sexuality, like everything else, can be defiled. And they're defiled by expressions that involve these two things. This is how we mess sex up, two ways, lying and betrayal. Uh, William Shakespeare said this. He said, love all, trust few, and wrong no one. And this would be a good motto to apply to your own sexuality. Uh, to love everyone is the mandate of every person. But think of it like this. Our giving of love doesn't automatically default to sexual expression. How you, let me say that again, our giving of love, we're supposed to love everybody, but our giving of love is not to automatically default to sexual expression. How you express love is effective only if it's perceived as love by the receiver. 
which is why it's possible for two people to actually have sex and there be no love or even any intimacy involved. This is one of the dangers of pornography because it's not that there's any love that's reciprocated and it's not that there's any intimacy involved even though you're observing what appears to be an intimate act. It's a complete false sense of love and intimacy. Um, and that's also like a drug, actually, the addiction that happens from that. And then you have to have more or something more and more, and it just keeps expanding. <clears throat> Within the context of modern human culture, sex becomes has become, especially for young people today, has become as much a way to experience pleasure as say riding a roller coaster or attending a concert or going to the movies or getting a foot rub. So for many people, especially young people today who treat sex so casually, it involves uh, or just simply falls into the category of just entertainment. So on one hand, when something so all encompassing as human sexuality becomes no big deal, there's a loss of value in its purpose and less fulfillment in its mere existence. In other words, it becomes easy to ignore. For people who struggle with compulsive addictions to all things sexual, this would seem like a complete impossibility. But if you talk to an adult industry professional and you'll quickly realize how easy it is for us to become desensitized. One revelation they do tend to get, which is of great value, is that there is an intimacy that's found beyond the realm of human sexuality. And, and some, uh, there's uh, ministries, some friends of ours do uh, ministry with in uh, uh, major cities that have like adult film festivals where they go and they minister to the, especially the women that are involved in these things, because oftentimes it involves an element of human trafficking. And for people who've been doing this business for years and years and years, and physical, the physical expression of sexual intimacy has just become another day at the office. There is a quest that lies beyond that, that they talk of or they speak of as the greater quest. And that is a quest for an intimacy that lies beyond the flesh, beyond the costume. And in some ways, that, that perspective, uh, even though that lifestyle, I wouldn't say is a healthy lifestyle, but that perspective tends to find its way to, to, to a place of clarity, like, oh my goodness, it's not just about the physical. There is a depth to human sexuality that goes into the soul and the spirit as well. And that's a big deal. That's a huge, huge one to understand and to discover. Um, for those who believe in this experience, that experience is what we often call true love. So, Again, back to the church, for people who are often hypersensitive and even ultra-repressive culturally, they find sex both impossible to talk about casually and to ignore casually. In other words, sex freaks some people out and makes the Christian brain oftentimes, conservative Christian brain, short-circuit. Like uh, the man I heard about in Houston, Texas, who left a church because of the gas station next to it where he saw pornography and condoms for sale. And he claimed that seeing that caused him to stumble because he couldn't concentrate on the message or go to a church that was near a place that sold such things. True story. So this is a person I would say who has come to believe like a lot of people that sex is the biggest deal of big, big deals that have ever been. 
the struggles with managing an appetite and the rational and irrational weaknesses that can overtake a person produce inordinate amounts of guilt and shame. And if there's one thing that's a downer on sexual fulfillment and can kill your buzz quicker than anything, it's shame. Secrecy might seem sexy, but shame most certainly is not. Shame will cause people to act out irrational behavior and call it holy. Take that statement, just kind of tuck it in the back of your mind and just meditate on that. Shame will cause people to act out irrational behavior and call it holy. Shame is religion's way of convincing you that you're evil because of what you have done, where the Holy Spirit is the Father's way of convincing you that you are righteous because of what Jesus Christ has done. See, if if for some reason I could somehow convince you that you're out of favor with God, it would put you in a position where now, even as a leader, I could control your behavior by taking responsibility for your life. And in the church, we often call that accountability. So to justify controlling people who seemingly have no self-control, oftentimes in churches, we as pastors have preached some atrocious theology that generates a response motivated by guilt, shame, and fear. And this is where Paul, the Apostle Paul, made a liberating blanket statement of behavior. And and this applies so well to this thought. This is the phrase he says, all things are lawful or permissible. Not all things are beneficial or edifying. Now think about that. He says this phrase in a couple of different ways. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are beneficial. All things are permissible, but not all things are edifying. And then he actually goes on to say, I won't be mastered by any of them. So I want you to think about this. What is Paul saying when he says all things are lawful and permissible? Does it mean that they're blessed by God? No, but you and I have been given the freedom to choose, to do pretty much what, if you go out tonight and you want to commit some egregious sin, I pretty much guarantee that there's no angel that's going to come and smack you and say, hey, knock it off. More than likely, God will allow you to do what you choose to do, for better or for worse. He's just not into controlling. That's how high of a value that God has for freedom. But we wish that he would sometimes, (laughs) right? Don't you kind of wish God would stop people or control people? Keep people from harming themselves or keep people from harming one another. But God has such a high value for freedom that he refuses to. And sometimes there's definitely intervention. I think he brings people into our life. He brings circumstances, things like that. But but he's not typically going to just show up and say, hey, knock it off. This is why he gives us the Holy Spirit, to teach us how to manage our freedom. Okay, so back to this. So back to the phrase, all things are lawful, but not all things are beneficial or edifying. Whatever your theological perspective or position on God's perspective of human sexuality, even the most liberal of persons for whom anything goes, and I think all of us know people in that camp, would concede that not everything goes well. Anything that brings shame and pain to your heart and dulls your ability to detect and discern the voice of the Lord and to know the mind of God is of no benefit 
And that's what qualifies as sin. Let me say that again. Anything that brings shame, pain to the heart, and dulls our ability to detect and discern the voice and the mind of God, that's what qualifies as sin. For some people, um, it's an enlightened existence to, rather than just change your behavior, simply become convinced that the behavior is fine. And this is, by the way, a really common thing with young people right now. Well, we're in love, so it really doesn't matter what we do. So we're seeing in our society a diminishment of the importance of marriage or the, 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 um, the covenant of marriage or the building or the creation of a covenant like marriage. We're seeing a, a, almost like an erosion of that at a lightning, lightning pace right now. So again, if they can just become convinced that the behavior is fine, then it shouldn't produce any shame or guilt. But listen to this. Ask somebody who's hurt or betrayed by the behavior of another, and they would say that such selfish recklessness is no enlightenment to any perspective. So on this note, William Shakespeare in the 16th century had it right. Love all and do wrong to no one. So love was never meant to betray. Love was never meant to cause pain. Love was never meant to justify lies. So I'm going to offer this suggestion to you in regards to love and sexuality. Share your kindness liberally. Share your commitment carefully. Share your heart rarely. Share your love as liberally as you do your kindness but give of your sexuality when all four, that is kindness, commitment, heart, and love, are present in you and presented to you. Let me say that again. Share your kindness liberally. Share your commitment carefully. Share your heart rarely. And share your love as liberally as you do your kindness. But only give of your sexuality when all four of those are present in you and presented to you. Ideally defined, a marriage ceremony is supposed to be a public profession that this moment is the convergence of all of these qualities. So the embrace of sexual intimacy, it's the prized expression of authentic love. And herein is a value and satisfaction far above a selfish, or animalistic or physically dominating fulfillment. Genuine intimacy and true pleasure is found in the presence of God, who is love. It's his hand upon your life and your behavior that will actually illuminate the deepest revelation of you as a creation of God, spirit, soul, and body. And so we want to, at this point, just kind of leave you with that. And, uh, and, and my prayer is that every person, um, it'd be something to go back and just revisit, look over. Uh, I may want to pick up a copy of the book vignette, but uh, to go back and revisit those things about kindness, about heart, about commitment, and about love. And to recognize that the responsibility that we have is to cultivate those things within us, uh, within ourselves. Uh, kindness, by the way, these days, I'm noticing that social media is, is just a big giant dumpster fire right now. 
And it's almost like people have forgotten, especially in the church, people have forgotten that kindness is actually a fruit of the spirit. And one of the ways that kindness is demonstrated is, uh, is the way we treat, especially our spouse. And so uh, uh, I'm going to open this up to some questions. If anybody got any questions over the first section we talked about and this next section, and then we just kind of want to finish this out by just saying a prayer Can again. I, over I say real quick, yeah, um, on a, since we, you know, he's talked about sex here, sexuality, if anybody is struggling in their marriage, their relationship, I don't know, sometimes there's medical reasons that need to be addressed, but it's crazy mind boggling how many people are um, victims of sexual abuse. Yeah. So we've talked with lots of people that have carried things into their marriage and they've had to go through a healing process so that they can see sex as a wonderful, beautiful, good thing that they can experience with their spouse. Mm -hmm. um, I'll just, yeah, if anybody, if you are in that camp, and you need some help walking out of that. I wanted to recommend, I have a friend named Mary DeMuth. Her last last name is D-E-M-U-T-H. Mary DeMuth. And she has marydemuth.com. Um, she does a thing called Restory. And it's rewriting your story. She, she was a victim of severe sexual abuse through childhood. Um, and she talks about how God restored that um, in her marriage relationship. And anyway, but I just wanted to put that out there in case anyone does need a resource for yeah. help. So. All right. Anybody got any questions you want to throw at us? The mic just so we can all hear it. <clears throat> Don't all jump up at once. It doesn't happen. <laughs> it doesn't have to be on this topic. It can be any, yeah. anything. Anything we talked about today at all. Um, I have a question about how to, um, about parenting and like how to raise kids, but with a healthy view of sexuality. How do you do that? Did you do that? How did you do it? <laughs> yeah, actually, um, so Bill used to teach a course on abstinence in public schools. He did that for several years and he had to do all this whole sex education thing. And so he talked openly with our kids when they were very young. I took them, I took <laughs> them to schools with me. Yeah, they actually went and sat in on some of his sessions. They saw the STD slides when they were little. Yeah. And I think the other thing, we were very open about, um, yeah, <laughs> that probably... Oh. The, the the course was called uh, the course was called Lifeguard and it worked with Austin uh, Life Care, which is a pregnancy center at the time, and um, worked with uh, another youth pastor in town uh, to help to write the course. Um, and a few of us collaborated on this thing and, and developed it over the years. And it ended up becoming the largest program of its kind in Texas. And uh, we would talk to, personally, I talked to 17,000 kids every year. Mm -hmm. uh, Lifeguard ended up becoming a program that, that blanketed all across uh, uh, the South and um, uh, had, a, had a tremendous, tremendous effect. Uh, youth pastors who came into our church, people we hired as youth ministers, all went to work for Lifeguard. And um, our youth pastor became the director of the program and stuff. So, so I worked with it ever since uh, 1994, we started, started the program. And we worked with a guy named Dr. Joe McElhaney for the Medical Institute for Sexual Health. He actually uh, was an advisor to uh, the president at the time. And uh, his institute was highly regarded, 
widely regarded as uh, the, the most the most comprehensive and current statistics they had on sexually transmitted diseases and all that stuff. So it's it's a uh, crazy. <laughs> we had really I had scary. this idea one day. I had this idea one day to um, take uh, take our kids to the class, and uh, uh, because there was nothing we talked, it was very open, very honest, very frank discussion. But it, it, there was no guilt and shame. It liberated a lot of kids, freed a lot of kids from guilt and shame. Talked a lot about their identity without uh, preaching. You know, we, I, I couldn't say anything about God or Jesus, but I, met, I did mention things about you know that they're created. Um, the, the purpose for which they're created, things like that. And so, uh, and, and, you know, it, but it was very open and frank and honest discussion. And, uh, and as our kids were, goodness. Well, and I think they for were our like, kids, we were very They were like open, eight and 10 years um, old. And so yeah. I took them to these high school classes yeah. and they sat in and, and they just like sat there and just watched and listened. And pretty soon they knew all the material backwards and forwards and upside down and whatnot. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. I think it's important for kids to, to I'm not see. Sure it was a great idea. But. Well, I think it's important for kids to see a healthy relationship between their mom and dad, like physical affection. Kids Absolutely. Hug, you know, whatever that they should be able to see. Okay, this is where this intimacy should be. Absolutely. Know, Even if it makes them uncomfortable, that's so much fun. <laughs> Making your kids, yeah. you know, freaking your kids out with your affection is just how great old fun. do you think our kids were when you? I think Sarah might have been as young as. Um, eight when she went to that class but um kids are learning about things very early now um even I think even if you homeschool we homeschooled but they're still exposed to kids whether it's at church you don't know who's learning what and what's being repeated so I think it's good to hit it pretty young well our, our kids by the way um even at that age you know seven and nine or so when we were talking to our kids about this stuff, uh, they had already heard this stuff from their friends. And I'm talking about the friends at church because yeah. they were, they were homeschooled. So these kids were pretty, our, our kids were about as sheltered as kids could be at the time. And both of them would tell you that's the case. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think, uh, the, and, and, and I would say our, especially our daughter has a really, uh, she's, our son is married now. Um, but our daughter's 23 and she has an incredibly healthy view of human sexuality. There's no guilt and there's no shame and it's total transparency. There's nothing embarrassing about it um, to her. Uh, yet at the same time, she understands the value of it. She understands the spiritual aspect of it. And, uh, and so I, I think anything that removes the stigma, you know, uh, and again, we oftentimes will label it as embarrassing under the guise of, of wanting to be respectful about it. In fact, I think, you know, if you don't talk, if you don't talk about it, frankly, and openly, then you're, you're going to find yourself not even be able, being able to relate to your kids when it comes to this topic, because I guarantee they're hanging out with their friends and they're talking about it, frankly, and openly and using terms that I think you're probably super uncomfortable with. And so once you, once you begin to realize that you go, okay, wait a minute, I got to get the jump on this thing. I want that. And I I say just be open and honest with them. If if let me give you a real practical one here. Let's say you're watching TV, and a situation pops up where uh, a person uh, there's an inappropriate thing going on on the on the television or whatever. It's a great opportunity. Oftentimes Christians will just like oh quick change the channel 
or hit the mute button and not or, talk about it. And then it. not talk about it. <laughs> Pretend like nobody saw that or it didn't happen. Rather than do that, or what that say, teaches, that what that bad. teaches them is I'm embarrassed at this and I I'm I'm I don't even want to talk about it. I want to deal with it. And then when their friends talk about it openly, makes their friends come across as more courageous than even their parents are. And their parents are just trying to be respectful and have values. So rather than just rush real quick when you when you overhear something in public or you see something on TV or in a movie, rather than just shut it all down and say, oh, that's it, we're shutting this off, stop it and have a discussion. Use the moment to allow the topic to come up to teach them how to react to things in a way that reflects the values of God. This is the reason why I say, you say well, would you say you shouldn't? You shouldn't shut off, you know, you should let junk play or stuff in your house. Not necessarily, but when they get out into the world, when they get into college, there's no nobody going to be around with a remote control on life, muting the people in the restaurants, the bars, the dorms, uh, uh, stopping the, you know, fast forwarding the tape or whatever. Tape, nobody has tape anymore. You know what I'm saying? Fast forwarding the movie. Nobody's going to be there to do that. And if they haven't learned from you, how to respond to things that are uncomfortable, then they're gonna they're gonna take their cues from everybody else around them. Um, and that's I think, a really good point because yeah. you recently did a, a wedding for a couple, and upon it was like a week before they got married, they said, "Hey, can you know let's get together? We have some questions." Discovered that this young lady, uh, really in her mind, sex was a very bad thing, and she was about to get married, and she did not have a good uh, perspective, honestly, yeah. and this is a Christian couple, and they had no reason to be ashamed or to enjoy their honeymoon. And so, Bill actually had to go back to like square one, and and uh, her parents had never talked to her about it. Um, it was just a very dirty, bad thing. Girl, that in, you her, don't talk girl about. in her twenties, she and her fiance, mm -hmm. and they were scared to talk about it with each other. And they're getting married next week, mm -hmm. and I sat down with went, okay. I'm going to save your marriage right now. And we got uh, so frank and uncomfortable for them. Uh, Trey, Trey, as you can tell you, I, I, I just started asking questions and talking to them in such a way that they were both just staring wide-eyed, like crazy wide-eyed. Like they this. sent us a picture while they were on their honeymoon. They looked very happy, and they said, thank you. <laughs> so. Yeah, the, the, guy, the guy said, when I did their wedding, he said, I think you did save our marriage. And uh, from all their... From all of their posts on Instagram, it sure looks like they're enjoying this lockdown quarantine time. <laughs> Hopefully that helps. So uh, back to what you were talking about, the, how, the image, how we're created in the image of God. If, if we as a culture, if like postmodern culture would would grasp that and understand that what would be the first things that would change in our culture if they understood that we are made in the image of God wow um, we would first off have a kingdom perspective in everything uh, for example uh, in the scriptures when God shows up when Jesus shows up like for example uh, people asked Jesus maybe like 300 questions in the Bible, and he clearly answered about two of them. But what he does with questions is he draws us on a quest of shifting our perspective. Rather than uh, 
removing all of our negative circumstances and enemies around us. In Psalm 103, David said, and now will my head be lifted up above my enemies around me. Uh, in so th- th- again, there's negative circumstances all around us. Rather than coming in and fix all the problems, he shifts our perspective. And then David's response to that is, I'm going to offer the sacrifices of joy. We would stop being moved by the wind and the waves and the circumstances of everything going on in this world, and we would consistently stay focused in and worship the Lord. That's, the, that's a kingdom mindset. It, it elevates us to a completely different perspective. Um, we, wouldn't, uh, uh, we wouldn't be so enamored with the religious system and the political system that uh, exists in the world. Uh, I think um, when, when we uh, think about the times where Jesus warned people, said two things. He said, beware of the leaven of Herod and the leaven of the Pharisees. Leaven of Herod is the political system. The leaven of the Pharisees is the religious system. And Jesus said, essentially, hey, watch out for those two things. In other words, don't let the religious system or the political system get into your system because it'll draw your attention down to a lower nature perspective. And you'll find yourself constantly fighting and arguing um, with people of a differing opinion. Ultimately, God unites, uh, uh, unites us, draws us to a place of unity in his kingdom. The Bible says his kingdom rules over all. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, it says there's coming a day where he is abolishing all rule and all authority, where he hands all authority back over to the Father, and Jesus Christ is king. His kingdom ultimately has no end. It rules over all. It's never been threatened before. It's not going to be threatened in the future, and it's not being threatened now. When we carry a kingdom perspective, then we, we realize that nothing can threaten our joy, our peace. Nothing can, can threaten our, our, uh, um, uh, our awareness of our, our identity in Christ. Nothing. Um, the Bible says that you and I are the light of the world. Jesus said of himself, I'm the light of the world. Then he looks at you and says, you're the light of the world. And darkness can only threaten you when you've forgotten you're the light of the world. Uh, so we will have such a kingdom perspective that rather than argue with people in this lower nature, like people do on Facebook all the time, mm-hmm. they'll elevate the conversation to see things from a kingdom perspective. And again, it doesn't take away, it doesn't, it's not a perspective that ignores the problems going on in the world. It's a perspective that recognizes we're all already victorious before we've even faced them. I think of uh, John, uh, the gospel of John chapter 16 verse 33, where Jesus speaks and says, these things I've spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. Then he says, in this world, you will have trouble. I don't like the phrase that. I don't like that he said that. That says that in my future, there's going to be moments of pain, suffering, difficulty, misunderstandings, whatever. In this world, you will have trouble. There are challenges that will come to all of us, Christian, non-Christian alike. But then he says, be of good cheer. In other words, let your joy be maintained. Don't let this take away your joy. For I have, that's past tense, I have overcome the world. So think of it like this. This is God saying, here you are in this world where in the future you have challenges ahead of you. But I've already been in your future and I've already equipped, because I see everything that's coming, and I've equipped you with everything necessary to encounter every single challenge 
with everything you need to walk through it completely victorious. In other words, he sees you as victorious before you've even, you know, faced the battle, before you've even faced the fight. We would like to say, oh, God, wouldn't you just take away all the issues and all the problems and all, all the things and, and just, just deal with it all. But that's not what he does. And as Christians, I think we've got to learn to go through difficulties, disagreements, um, uh, whether a president is office we in office that we like or we don't like. It doesn't change some things about our perspective. Uh, and, and if we don't learn how to do those things, we don't learn how to suffer or go through times of, of difficulty or challenge without our faith being challenged, we will never have a faith that a suffering, confused world can relate to. Um, let me just bring it to a political place right now, because I know this is super fun to talk about and, and so uniting. Um, you know, right now we're demonstrating what is possible when uh, um, the body of Christ, I mean, more than any president in my lifetime, except for maybe Ronald Reagan, more than any president in my lifetime, has the evangelical church rallied around a president. Now, granted, he's the most, he's the most blatantly immoral president we've had in my lifetime. And yet, we've never had a greater friend of the church in my lifetime. So I don't even know what to do with this guy, right? I'm just like, what in the world you know, is going on here? But at the same time, I recognize God can use anybody he wants. And so what we have here is we have the church for, for the first time in my lifetime, and many of yours, fulfilling the mandate to pray for, not against our leaders or authorities governing over us. The Apostle Paul says this, by the way. He tells, he encourages us to pray first for those in leadership over us. The people in leadership over him would eventually chop his head off, by the way. And so his perspective has now been elevated to such a kingdom place that he realizes that there's no political system that can truly threaten me. Not only that, but fighting on this level down here doesn't change the reality that his kingdom rules overall. Ultimately, his kingdom has no end. It's going to take precedence over all of this. And when all of the nations of the world have actually gone away, the one thing that remains is his kingdom. As uncomfortable as that may might make us, all of us are going to have to realize we are ultimately citizens of an eternal kingdom, another world, and it's not America. It's it's not any nation here on this earth that that we could point to and say, oh, that's that's a that nation, that nation. That's that's going to be the one. There's no earthly nation that it remains in a sense as it is now when the kingdom of God comes in power. His kingdom dissolves all the nations and ultimately every power, rule, authority, presidency, monarchy, dictatorship, and king hands everything over to him and drops a knee and says, Jesus is Lord. That's the way it is, to the glory of God the Father. Citizens of the kingdom of heaven. That's, so, that's our nationality. When we put the image and likeness of God on display, it's a long answer to a short question, but this is the way I would say it looks like. That, that um, I mean, I think, oh, this will be controversial. I think we, I think we did the last president, president wrong because most churches I went to said more prayers of cursing against him than they said of prayers of blessing for him and, and prayers of desire to have an encounter, for him to have an encounter with the Lord. I wonder what would have happened if we would have committed to and publicly declared 
that we would pray for, let's say, Barack Obama uh, in the same way that much of the church has done with Donald Trump would have possibly turned an adversary into an advocate, uh, turned somebody who's an adversary into maybe even an ally of the body of Christ and opened ears and got caused an invitation for somebody who the church made an enemy out of to like Psalm 23, where God says he prepares a table for us in the presence of our enemies. Maybe it's so that we can invite that enemy to the table. So in the breaking of bread, he can discover that he's actually our brother. This is how God transcends systems to get to the hearts of people because Jesus died to redeem people, not systems. So, uh, for example, he calls Daniel to serve in Babylon, which was oppressively taking the people of God captive. In that place, Daniel served dishonorable, horrible, wicked kings from actually a heart of compassion. So he actually says phrases like this. He says, oh, king, when he's giving a, a negative word to a king, he'll say, oh, king, live forever. Word to God, this word were for me and not for you. That's a heart of compassion that actually caused Daniel to be to elevate things to a, a kingdom, a heavenly kingdom perspective to the point where he was given rulership and authority in an earthly system that he was called to serve. And I believe one of the things that that blessing rather than cursing will do is open up doors for us to actually serve people God wants to redeem in the middle of unredeemed systems. So in every way, from our families, our marriages, political sphere, education, mountain, all those different things, we'll begin to see and operate and act from a kingdom perspective. It's interesting because I had pulled up James 3 a while ago, and I didn't know why. But since you said that about, you know, not speaking curses, but mm -hmm. blessing, James chapter 3 is talking about the power of our tongue, the tongue, you know, uh, we can speak curses or blessing. Uh, in James 3 chapter, sorry, in verses 9 through 10, he says, with it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. I just thought that was really fitting with what you were saying, because everybody that's created, you know, they are created in the image and likeness of God, even if they don't know him yet. So we aren't to speak curses. That, that was yeah. to go along with what you were saying. You know, when Jesus shows up on the scene, he, he has a way of demonstrating the supernatural level of compassion that invades impossibilities. So I think one of the ways that the, the image and likeness of God can be put on display right now is in actively confronting this thing of this virus with a supernatural compassion. Um, supernatural compassion that actually that, that pray for people that there, there was a plague, a pandemic actually that happened. Um, uh, I love history and church history, but from the years 246 to 268 AD, there was a plague that hit. And I would love to go back to that time and see that there was a great healing revival. I pray for that to happen in our day. But in that time, there's no record of, of healings that took place. But there is a record of a difference between the way that Christians treated the sick and the way the pagans treated the sick. When somebody in a pagan household got sick, they would actually throw their family member out into the street and lock them outside for fear that they would get the disease. So the pagans of their day were into self-preservation, preserving life as much as possible. 
But the Christians of the day saw people dying in the streets and they couldn't bear that. And so they pulled them off the streets and pulled them into their homes. And oftentimes said that they pulling them into their homes, caring, intending for them, that the, they would get the plague and, and they would die. <coughs> they felt like that it was their duty to actually do that because it wasn't Christ-like to let somebody die alone. Uh, they were not into self-preservation over compassion. Compassion overtook their need to preserve self. And, uh, and so many Christians died. That, that's where we get the concept, by the way, of a Christian burial, is from that time in history where Christians actually took it upon themselves rather than, rather than piling up corpses and burning the bodies, which was normal, or just dropping them in a hole in the ground, to give them a dignified burial, to put monuments up to their life, things like that. That's why it's called a Christian burial, because for the first time in history, these folks dignified those who had passed away. And uh, his, here's the way that history records it, and that is it records a distinction between the pagan tendency to preserve self and, and to throw compassion out the window along with their loved ones, and for the Christian tendency to sacrifice of self in order to demonstrate the compassion of Christ for somebody else. Sometimes healing of a society comes through the supernatural power of God coming in and eradicating a disease. And sometimes the healing of society comes through the laying down of our life for somebody else, even when it appears that there's no miracle taking place. That two decades of plague and compassion in the midst of it propelled years of Christian influence into the rest of the world as the news and the fame of that measure of compassion, sacrificial compassion, actually gave way to, uh, to pushing pagan influence out of the way in the decades ahead. And, uh, and so I, I feel like the image and likeness of God demonstrated through the people of God as we focus in on the kingdom of God will be reflected in us and through us in a supernatural compassion that puts the love of Christ on display. And however that looks like to you and I um, really is ultimately up to uh, the measure of obedience that we have to the voice of the Lord. I'll give you one example. There's a, there's a German lady in our town, um, real thick accent, uh, hard to understand, but she, um, the town we live in, by the way, is a town that Disney built. And uh, picture, if you wonder what it's like, Picture a town that Disney would build, and whatever you're picturing, that's what it is. It, it's music coming out of the bushes 24-7. It looks like a storybook land. It's crazy. But just 10 minutes away from here, there's extreme poverty. And so uh, this dear friend of ours had it in her heart to take and do some ministry down in one of the hotels. But we didn't realize. We went down, down there with her just to see what we could do in these hotels started getting donations from friends and neighbors around the area and taking food and things when this pandemic started. And one of the hotels, there's two hotels side by side. One of the hotels, the owners had completely abandoned the hotel uh, when the pandemic started and they had just left. When that happened, they shut off the water and the electricity to the hotel. The hotel was filled with people from a low income uh, um, level and they started running extension cords from the hotel next door and carrying water in buckets over to be able to flush the toilets. Mm -hmm. And they were living like this in, in rooms, hotel rooms with kids and families and whatnot. There's 75 children that are living wow. over there. Now, if you think about that, the, the, the heat of Florida 
at a, a non-air-conditioned non place is absolutely miserable. Well, it, I mean, it broke our heart to see this. But our dear friend, uh, Bettina, uh, sweet German lady, was she just decided it was, I got some here. She decided it, it was just time to get out and do something about this. So she rallied people around the area. And uh, through the course of time that thousands of dollars donated successfully have moved those families out of that hotel into uh, uh, another hotel that's comfortable, that's clean, and, and they're being taken care of. The idea of stepping across um, denominational, political, racial boundaries, pushing all of that aside to love one another just because it's the right thing to do. I think the image and likeness of God is most demonstrated in those moments of, of radical sacrificial kindness. Anyway, super long answer to a super short question. And none of that had anything to do with marriage, I think. But then again, maybe it did. Thank you so much. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for sharing. Giving up your time on a Saturday. Precious ends of, of a good day. And uh, we'll work out a way. We'll be talking to you by email and figuring out a way. Maybe we can do something again. Uh, we've got a couple other opportunities coming up. Might be good to dovetail. And we've met a friend of yours. There's a guy named uh, uh, Jim Baker from Ohio. <laughs> and so we thought we it'd be fun maybe to have you and Jim together in the same kind of uh, venue. So we'll... we'll Jim and I look forward to getting together any chance we can. And uh, yeah, he and I are both kind of big Star Wars fans. And so he, he said ever... that. Yeah. 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 Ha, ha. Again, thanks, Tracy. God bless you, Bill. We appreciate Thank you both. You so much. Thank you. Thank you all so much. You guys have been so kind and uh, to come and, and watch us on the screen. I mean, for all you know, we're not even wearing pants. We didn't think you were. We didn't. We we didn't think you were. But uh, <laughs> what's really cool is this actually worked. I mean, we felt conviction. We felt the Holy Spirit speaking. I mean, this this yeah. was uh, this was really good. Very very challenging to get it all in place. We had so many ups and downs and so many missteps. And I thought this is either going to be a really really great conference or it's going to be a complete dud. I think it was a really great conference. This was, this was, it exceeded my expectations. And awesome. I'm, just, I'm just grateful. So thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. A lot of the revelation, I think, that we talked about today, I feel is it goes out in time release form. So you may find that in the days ahead, something just pops up, comes to mind, and uh, grabs a hold of you. I want to mention also, um, for those of you uh, who are readers, especially right now in the downtime, Tracy uh, wrote a novel uh, about marriage actually some years ago. It's a, a two-parter called The Porches of Holly and the Windows of Holly. And it's, uh, it, it has saved uh, quite a few marriages over the years. And there's a producer from Disney that's actually gotten a hold of it. And he and his wife both read it. It saved their marriage. And he, um, he approached Tracy and said, we need to turn this into a movie. Wow. So the screenplay is written. And as soon as this COVID thing lifts and we can cast and start filming, the Porches well, of Holly will become a film. As soon as we get $750,000, so. <laughs> then we <laughs> So it's in the early pre-production 
So, mm -hmm. yeah, it's exciting. Anyway, we're really, really excited about that. And uh, so, so for those of you in the room that are readers, uh, you can jump on Amazon and find Tracy's books, The Porches of Holly and The Windows of Holly. And I'm not a reader of fiction. I used to um, work with an author, dear friend of mine named Ted Decker. And he would ask me, what's your, what's, what's my, one of my books that you've read? What's, what's the favorite one? And I'm like, yeah, I'm not really a fiction guy. So, <laughs> you know, I was honest with Ted and told him that, but I sat down with Tracy's book and I started reading it. I couldn't put it down. And uh -huh. it wasn't just because she wrote it. She really hit a vein of something yeah. and writing is, is really her, her grace and her gift on her life. So that's why I let that. him do all the speaking. <laughs> <laughs> I write, he talks. <laughs> Very good. Anyway, love you guys. Thank you for having Bless us you. here tonight. Bless you guys. We'll Have a wonderful again. evening. Thank you.